Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's great to see you tonight. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors with the Hallows Church up at our, at our North Seattle Expression that uh, began gathering together on Sunday mornings uh, a little less than a year and a half ago, and God has been uh, very gracious towards us up there. Uh, but I do always enjoy coming back here to be with you in this way as we open our Bibles together uh, to Psalm 27, the passage you heard just a few moments ago. Now, I remember as a young man, as a college student, taking a trip to Yosemite National Park in Northern California with some friends of mine. You see, we were uh, very much into rock climbing at the time. In fact, we were kind of obsessed with rock climbing at the time, and Yosemite was very much a a rock climbing mecca in every way, a very beautiful uh, place, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, in fact. But uh, it was a pretty long drive from Southern California up into Yosemite uh, Valley, so we hit the road one afternoon, and we... Uh, got pretty far along, but it was getting late, and so we decided to stop the night before, uh, an hour or two outside of Yosemite, and we stayed the night there. We planned to uh, drive the rest of the way the next morning, first thing in the morning, and so that's what we did. And one of the ways you get into uh, Yosemite National Park, coming from the south, which is what we were doing, it, it takes you through this very long tunnel. It's called the Wawona Tunnel, and it's nearly a mile long. And it's bored through solid granite the entire way. It's the longest tunnel in California, uh, at least it was at the time. And right at the end of the tunnel, you come out of the tunnel, and there's this big parking area where you can pull over and uh, get out of your car to take in a very, very special view. It's called the Tunnel View. And from that particular vantage point, you can see the entire Yosemite Valley and all of its Uh, very famous granite formations and waterfalls and things like that. You can see El Capitan and Half Dome. You can see Cathedral Rock and Bridalville Falls, among others. But when we pulled through the tunnel that morning and into the parking area, we were quite disappointed, in fact, to discover that uh, there was a rather low cloud cover hanging over the valley that morning. You see, there was a layer of fog obscuring from our view what we had come to see and what we wanted to see so badly. We had heard about the tunnel view, but we uh, had never experienced it for ourselves. Now, there were others in the parking lot that morning, too, like us, wanting to get uh, a glimpse of glory that day, but like us, being frustrated by the poor visibility that day. But someone there in that parking lot, they told us we should stick around because the forecast was saying that the fog would be Uh, clearing up quite soon. And so we did that. We hung around for a little while, and sure enough, they were right. Because before we knew it, we began to hear in that parking lot some oohs and some ahs as the clouds began to break and as the fog began to lift and as we we were able to begin taking in this, this really spectacular view. There was incredible beauty to be seen that morning by us, and it was right in front of us, uh, waiting to be seen. It hadn't gone anywhere, of course, but we could not see that beauty when we first arrived. We could not experience that beauty, you see, through all the fog and through all the cloudiness until the conditions changed and until our visibility improved. Now, as we continue this new sermon series called Drawing Near, my hope is that It might help us together to clear away any fog, any cloudiness that may be obstructing our view and keeping us from taking in the true beauty of of who our God is and all that he's done for us in Jesus, because the more we're able to clear away all that may be obscuring our view of our God, the more I believe that we as a people together will draw nearer to him 
and we'll experience and enjoy him in deeper and more meaningful ways. Last week, Pastor Andrew kicked things off for us in this series as we considered the openness of God. We considered the reality that our God has opened himself up to us very willingly, very, very deliberately. He has revealed himself to us in spite of us, really, and he has done so in a variety of ways. He has done so through his creation. He has done so through our, our conscience. He's done so through the pages of the scripture, and he has done so most fully and most finally in the person and the work of Jesus. And as Pastor Andrew also talked about uh, last week, each week during this sermon series, an artist within our faith family will be creating and contributing a piece of art that will be inspired, that is inspired by the particular attribute and the particular passage that we're, uh, we'll be studying that day. And this week, this week, the attribute we'll be exploring together is the beauty of God. And the artwork this week that is coupled with that attribute, it was created by Nanette Sakanashi, and it's hanging up over to your right to, to enjoy. And you, let me encourage you, uh, from a distance, you don't get the full beauty of what's going on there, but let me encourage you to step up and look closely at that after the gathering, because there's much going on there. There's, there's, it's quite beautiful what you will see when you do so, and so uh, let me encourage you to do that. Let me also thank Nanette for sharing her uh, gifts with us in this way and partnering and participating with us in this way. All right then, uh, let's get going. Psalm 27, we're going to be asking three questions of this text about the beauty of God. First, why we need it, what it is, and how it changes us. And despite the title and the topic today, I do hope to show you that this topic and this psalm is actually far more practical for you and I today than you might think at first glance. So the beauty of God, first, why we need it. In verses two and three, we find that certain people, evildoers, it says, are coming against David, seeking to devour and destroy him, it says. We find armies surrounding David. We find wars um, breaking out against him. In verse five, David refers to the day of trouble, the day of adversity coming at him and uh, coming against him. And one thing we know about David is that the day of trouble seemed to come after him continually. He often seemed to find himself in very real danger and under very real uh, threat as he led the nation of Israel as their king. But we also see in David a man who uh, turned to God and who trusted God in the midst of it all. You see that in verse 1. He says, Lord, you are my light and my stronghold. If you are with me, he says, what do I have to fear? And God would help David in his day of trouble again and again, but not necessarily in the ways that many people might want God to help them in their own day of trouble. If we're not careful, we can read this psalm and others like it and think that the answer to our day of trouble is that God will remove that day of trouble for us. And at times he might, but that's not what it says here and that's not what the Bible says generally either. Verse 5 of this passage doesn't say just turn to God and trust God and he'll keep you safe uh, from the day of trouble. It doesn't say he'll keep you safe from your enemies. No, verse 5 says turn to God and trust God and he'll keep you safe not from, your enemy, not from the day of trouble but, but in the day of trouble. God promises to keep you safe not from the day of trouble but in the day of trouble and there is a big difference between the two. 
This sounds somewhat similar to Psalm 23, really, a very famous psalm written by this same King David. Psalm 23 starts out with some very beautiful language and imagery. Get this, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And all that sounds quite wonderful, doesn't it? And then get this, down in verse 5 of Psalm 23, David says, Lord, you prepare a table for me. And that sounds quite nice too, right? But as you keep reading, you find out where that table is located. It says, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't say, Lord, thank you for removing my enemies, though sometimes he might. It says, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David here, he's being quite honest. He's being quite realistic. He's being uh, quite realistic about the li- uh, living life in this fallen world. You see, David assumes there will be much trouble in his life. He assumes there will be many battles and enemies in his life, but he has a strategy for facing it all. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. Now, you may be saying, hang on a minute, I don't really, uh, I'm not really facing any assassination attempts at the moment. There are really no armies surrounding me. I'm not, I'm not having to flee for my life. But is that entirely true? The fact of the matter is we have many enemies coming at us and coming against us in our lives too, don't we? There are many battles that we have no choice but to turn and to face. Sin most certainly is seeking to surround you and to seize control of your life. Satan is most certainly seeking to assault you through deception and through distraction and through division. Evildoers will come against you to take advantage of you, to step on you, to step over you as they step past you on their way up the ladder. People will use you. They will misuse you. They will even abuse you in your relationships with them. Disease and despair and death are coming after you as well in this life. And it is only a matter of time before they begin in one way or another to trip you up and to take you down. Just this past week, we learned of two more celebrities who seem to have so much going for them, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, becoming overwhelmed and overtaken by the heaviness and by a perceived hopelessness of living life in this fallen world. The day of trouble is relentless in its pursuit of us. It just keeps on coming. But what David is going to show us here in Psalm 27 is that there is a condition available to you and I where we can live confidently and courageously and even joyfully, irrespective of what battle or what enemy we may face. You get a glimpse of it right there in verse 3. David says, uh, though armies are coming against me, my heart is not afraid. He says, uh, even when war is breaking out, me, out, out against me, he says, he says, I am confident. Now what you and I face may look quite different than what David faced, but, but given that David's battles were probably far worse than your battles and far worse than my battles, and he was able to find confidence and courage in the face of it all, It actually makes this psalm and David's strategy for living all the more pertinent and all the more uh, practical for us here today, I think. And so how does David do this? How can this be? 
Verses 4 and 5 of this passage begin to tell us how. In verse 4, David says, The one thing, the one thing that I want and need in order to live this way, it's not health, it's not wealth, it's not friends or loved ones, it's not success or achievements, rather it's to dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing on his beauty. In verse 5, he says, when I do that, when that is my singular focus, no matter what is going down in my life, he says, uh, the Lord shelters me. He hides me in the day of adversity. He conceals me. He sets me high upon a rock above the enemies around me. David's enemies are all around him. That much is clear. They're, they're closing in on him, but he, his head is up, and he's unfazed. Why? Because he's gazing upon what is most beautiful to him. Have you ever noticed how when you're feeling restless or anxious or perhaps fearful, you and I, we often seek out something beautiful? Very often, if I'm feeling upset or unsettled, you may, you may very well find me down at the Edmonds waterfront near my home, just sitting there, staring out into the ocean, gazing at the clouds and the mountains and the birds and just taking it all in. Some of you may put on your favorite music and just sit there and do nothing but, but listen. Some of you may go on a walk in the woods. And so, what are you doing there? You're, what you're doing there is you're calming yourself, right? You're calming your anxieties. You're calming your insecurities through, through an exposure to that which you find beautiful. There's an author named Iris Murdoch who wrote a famous essay on beauty. She talks about how at one point she was filled with much self-pity. She was very upset and very angry, but she said when she, she looked out her window, she saw an eagle riding the thermals, and she said she sat there and watched it for several minutes. She said the beauty of it captured her heart, and it took her, it took her out of herself. She thought to herself, why am I being so small-minded? Why am I being so upset? And then she wrote something about it. She said, she said, there's something about beauty. All human beings need it, not only to calm ourselves and renew ourselves, but also at some level to satisfy ourselves. That's why we go to the Grand Canyon, isn't it? That's why we watch the sunset. That's why we go to art museums. That's why we uh, decorate our houses and, and paint our walls. That's why the earliest humans and not animals carved images into the walls of the caves in which they dwelled. This is why in every tribe of humans ever known to exist, there has always been some form of art and craftsmanship that has nothing at all to do with utility or usefulness. No, it has to do with aesthetics and with beauty, deeply rooted in the human heart of every individual is a longing for beauty, a craving for beauty, we're all searching for it all around us in all sorts of ways, aren't we? In music, in art, in nature, in people, and in ourselves, too. But what David would say and what the entire Bible would say is that to the extent we try to satisfy these longings in the, in the wrong ways, to the degree we look to the beauty of the creation to calm and satisfy us, rather than looking to the creator behind the creation... Our longings will always be just that, longings that go unfulfilled. John Piper said this, he said, there is in the human heart an unquenchable longing for beauty, and I am persuaded 
that the reason it is there is because God is the ultimately beautiful one and he has made us to long for himself. And we can know that our desires for beauty in this world are mere remnants of this urge for God because everything less than God, he says, leaves us unsatisfied. N.T. Wright refers to the beauty of creation as a signpost pointing to a larger truth that is just around the corner, just out of sight. He says we can't grip it, we can't get our hands on it. It's as though we're hearing the echo of a voice and we'd, we'd love to hear whose that voice is and what story it's telling. Part of the joy of beauty, he says, is the realization that it is part of a larger whole, most of which appears to be just out of sight. We are drawn forward towards something and left waiting and wondering, that is, until we turn to Christ. St. Augustine said uh, this, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says that uh, what you're looking for in that ocean, what you're looking for in that sunset and that music, what you're looking for in that beautiful face, he says you're looking to beauty to settle yourself and to satisfy yourself and to deal with the restlessness and the churn that you feel inside yourself. But he says only God's beauty will do it. Only God's beauty can do it. David says, this is, this is what life is about. He says in verse 4, it's the one thing we need more than anything. It is his singular focus, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. It is the only beauty that can ever or, and will ever give to your soul what it has been looking for in all the various kinds of beauties that you've been looking to. And so the beauty of God, that's why we need it. But what is it? What is the beauty of God? How are we to think about this? And how are we to approach this? First of all, there's a sense in which the beauty of God is not one more attribute uh, next to all the others. You can't really put it next to his wisdom and his love and his uh, sovereignty. It's not one more attribute. Rather, God's beauty is really seen most vividly when we step back and when we consider all of his attributes and the relationship to one another. It's like a painting, or a, uh, like with a painting or a piece of art. You see, it's not necessarily an isolated color or shape or texture that is most beautiful in a painting. Rather, it is the interplay between them. It is their proportionality. It is the relationship to one another that brings the beauty of that piece alive. And so it is with God. It is the dynamic interplay between his attributes It is their harmony, it is their relationship to one another that brings the beauty of his person alive. The word beauty is used to describe God in a number of passages in the Old Testament, but it's not always the same Hebrew word that is used for it. There are several Hebrew words that get across the idea of beauty, and they help us understand, I think, what it means to to call God beautiful. In Isaiah chapter 33, for example, it says, Your eyes will see the Lord in his beauty. And the word beauty there is conveying something about God's excellence. You will see him in his excellence. In Psalm 50, it says, From Zion, Zion, you see, is the hill in Jerusalem where uh, the temple was built. And we'll come back to that a bit later. But it says, From the temple, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And there, the word for beauty gives more of a sense of attractiveness or, or desirability. 
But the word that David uses in verse 4, the word beauty in Psalm 27, it's a different Hebrew word, and it's a very interesting word. It's a word that means a perception that gives pleasure to the senses. And that's very interesting, isn't it? When David says, I'm gazing on the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27, he's talking about a perception of God that is pleasurable, a pleasurable perception. Ordinarily, to perceive something mostly just means to have an awareness of a fact that, that may be useful to you. Right, I perceive that car is coming down the road and therefore I will stay here on the sidewalk before crossing the street and wait for that car to pass. But this word is getting across the idea that God's beauty is far more than something you are simply aware of. It's much more than information that may be useful to you. What David is saying here is that the beauty of God means that to perceive him, to perceive who he is properly, to grasp who he is and what he's done, to look at his attributes and his names and his actions and to read about him, to perceive God as he really is, is something you experience. It's sensory. It's pleasurable. So I'd like to ask you today, do you know something about this? Can you relate to what David is speaking about here? If you say, well, wait a minute, I've never experienced pleasure looking at God or thinking about God in that way. I'm aware of who he is. I understand what the Bible says about him, but I can't say I've really experienced pleasure. If that's the case, then you haven't perceived him for who he really is. Not fully, because, because if you did, that perception would bring a pleasure and a satisfaction to your soul that is very real and very remarkable. That's what the Bible tells us, and that's, that's what this passage is teaching us, too. And notice that David is talking about gazing on the beauty of the Lord. What is gazing? What is that word? Have you ever looked at something that was uh, so amazing and fascinating and beautiful that you couldn't stop looking at it? You stared at it. You couldn't get enough of it. That is what David is talking about here. Friends, many people go to God for what he can do for them. They have certain needs and they go to him. They hope he might help them out in their life. They hope he might help them out in their marriage or their career. And so they go to God when the, when the storm hits, when the day of trouble comes. Why? Because they're hoping that he might be useful to them. The 18th century preacher and author Jonathan Edwards would suggest that what David is doing in verse 4 Gazing on the beauty of the Lord, experiencing him, finding pleasure uh, in him is one of the truest marks and measures of, of whether the gospel is really taking root in your heart. He would say that if the way you see God and the reason you go to God is because you hope that he might be useful to you, he says that's not Christianity at all. That's religion. The religious person you see finds God useful but the Christian person finds God beautiful. They both may be obedient to God. They both may be very committed to God. They be, both may, be, may even be desperately seeking God. But the religious person is driven, and the Christian person is drawn. The religious person is committed, but the Christian person is captivated. 
The religious person may be desperate for God, but usually they're most desperate for what he can do for them more than for what he offers to be to them. A religious person prays and asks God for many things and gets upset if those prayers go unanswered. But a Christian is somebody who has learned that far and away, the deepest and most satisfying part of prayer is not petition at all. It's not asking God for anything. No, the deepest and most satisfying part of prayer is is praising God and thanking God and adoring him and gazing upon his beauty. Friends, I'm pressing the point a bit here because at times I think it needs to be pressed. This is a struggle for many of us. I do know that. But I'd like to ask you this evening, how are you approaching him? And why are you approaching him? To get something from him? Or simply to get him? David says he is enough. He's all you need to face anything and everything that may may come your way. And so are you trusting that tonight? Do you believe that? Now, you may be saying at this point, can we get a bit more practical here, please? And the answer is yes. And So how do we do this? How can we see God as more beautiful in ways that make a practical difference in our lives like it seems to make in David's life? This passage, it gives us some clues, I think, and one of those clues is that gazing on the beauty of the Lord does require a certain uh, level, a certain element of pursuit on our part in verse 4 you see that we are to seek him some translations say that we are to inquire of him or to meditate upon him some translations say to meditate on who he is and what he's like and this tells us i think that gazing on the beauty of the lord is it's more than prayer it must include prayer that's to be sure but it's more than prayer And it should include Bible study, but it's more than reading through your Bible and taking in information and taking in uh, knowledge. David, in this passage and others, I think, would say that gazing on the beauty of the Lord needs to include uh, some form, some element of contemplation and, and meditation on our God and about our God and did you know that the word for, uh, for meditation that's used in some of the Psalms, it's actually related to a word used to describe a cow chewing its cud. But think about it, it's quite fitting, actually. A cow chews on a piece of food, he swallows it, and then he says to himself, well, that was pretty good, I think I'll bring that up and, and chew on it some more. When you meditate on the word of God, you're trying to get all the sweetness and all the flavor out of that piece of text. You're reading through a text that talks about some aspect or attribute of God, and you're not just trying to get information out of it. No, you you chew it slowly. You bring it back up again and again, and you assume there's more sweetness in there that you're not yet tasting. And as we do this, as we slow down and do this, we not only... We not only ask questions of the text, but we also need to let the the text ask questions of us. I think a pretty big problem in many churches today is not necessarily that we don't read the Bible, but that we don't know how to read the Bible in such a way that that we allow the Bible to actually read us. It's supposed to read us, and we're supposed to put ourselves in a position to allow that to happen. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Let's take a look at that. It says, The word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, 
penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Get this. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so, friends, the Bible is not a passive object that we examine. No, it examines us, and we need to let it if we are ever to be changed by it in any lasting sense. Most people read the Bible in the way they might read a newspaper or a magazine, and that is really to acquire information. We read some passages, we get some information, then we move on with our day feeling pretty good about uh, the fact that we know a little bit more Bible today. This is called informative reading, and of course it is needed, it is necessary in every way. We must know what the scriptures say, we must know the truth of what the scriptures say, but we actually need more than just information, I think, when we read our Bibles. There's also something called formative reading, which can and should be a part of uh, the time that we spend in God's word. With formative reading, you see everything turns around With formative reading, the text is in charge. The Bible is examining you. It's asking questions, and you let it. You read it slowly. You read it repeatedly. But most of all, you read it in God's presence. You read it in his presence. In verse 4, David is gazing on God's beauty. But where is that gazing happening? It's happening in the house of the Lord. In the temple, it says, And the temple is the very place of God's presence in the Old Testament. And so in a sense, David is saying, I'm going to gaze at you, Lord. I'm I'm going to meditate upon you, Lord, not on my own, not detached from you, but together with you in your presence. Have you ever looked at a really good painting or piece of art in the presence of the artist who created it? It's a different experience. You don't just look at it, you... You talk about it, and you talk about it with the artist. You say, what does this mean? What does that mean? Why did you do that? Oh, I love that part. And our times of meditation on the scriptures can and should be something like that. They can and should be interactive like that. And so you take a passage that grabs your attention, and you read it. And you read it in his presence. You bring it up, uh, back up several times. You chew on it uh, again and again. You draw out the sweetness. And eventually what may begin to happen, what often begins to happen is that your awareness, your awareness of his presence often becomes heightened. Your perception of him often becomes pleasing and sensory even as you draw near to him and as he draws near to you. And then you turn to him and you talk to him You say, I love that about you. You pray to him. You start telling him what he's like. If you've ever been in love, surely you can relate to this. You know that it is quite enjoyable to tell the person you love that you love them and and why you love them and how beautiful they are. And think about this with me. The more you express how wonderful they are to them, the more you tell them how beautiful they are, the more beautiful they become to you. And the more you enjoy them and appreciate them as beautiful. And so it is with God. And friends, I'm not making this up. It's all right here in this passage, is it not? Isn't this what David is doing in verse 6? 
Look at verse, verse six with me. David has all this crazy stuff going on around him. And yet what is he doing as he gazes on the beauty of the Lord? He's, he's taken up. He's taken outside himself. It says he's shouting for joy. He's offering shouts of joy to the Lord. He's singing and, and making music to the Lord. This is David worshiping God, praising God, not, not because God removed him from his day of trouble, but because his God is with him in his day of trouble. We're observing David engaging in expressive worship here. Some people do ask the question, why is God always telling people in the Bible to praise him and to, to worship him? Doesn't that seem egocentric? But at some level, Perhaps God tells us to do these things for our own good and and for our own joy. C.S. Lewis once said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses our enjoyment, but it completes our enjoyment. It is the consummation of our enjoyment, he says. He goes on by saying, lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are because their delight in the other is incomplete until it is expressed. This is why some of us raise our voices and raise our hands as we worship our Lord together in this setting each and every week because our delight in that moment is incomplete until it is expressed in that sort of way. If you're at a Mariners game and Segura hits a a home run in the bottom of the ninth to win the game, your enjoyment of that moment is incomplete If you stand there with your hands in your pockets, the enjoyment of that moment only becomes complete as you raise your arms and as you cheer, as you shout in celebration of what you just experienced. David here is completing the joy by expressing himself in worship by singing and shouting to the Lord. There's actually a place in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6 where we're told that David danced before the Lord with all his might. You see, his enjoyment would not be complete apart from him expressing himself in these ways. So let me encourage you today. Please don't ever be shy about lifting your voices, about lifting your hands, about clapping your hands here at the Hallows Church and even dancing before the Lord and with all your might if the Spirit so moves you. And as you do, you may be surprised at how expressing yourself in these ways can serve to enhance and complete your joy and your worship of our God in those moments. Now, if you think what I'm talking about here sounds strange, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, thinking about him, focusing on him, uh, meditating over him, I'd like to suggest to you today that if you're not doing it about God, you're doing it about something. You are definitely gazing. We're all doing it. A guy by the name of William Temple had a great little statement where he said, if you want to know what your real God is, consider where your mind goes when you don't have anything else to think about. He said, where does your, what does your mind gravitate toward in your solitude? Do you think about that house on the beach that you hope to have someday? Do you think about your 401k and how it's doing? Do you think about that next boyfriend or girlfriend, that next job or perhaps that next vacation? Whatever it is that you think most about in in your solitude, you know what you're doing, right? You're gazing, you're longing, you're adoring something. We're all doing it. 
And so what are you gazing at? What are you seeing as most beautiful in your life or in your future? What are you looking to to calm you, to please you, to satisfy you? Now, friends, I do hope you're feeling challenged by this passage today. I know that I am. But I also hope that you're feeling encouraged by this passage. We should feel challenged because this is not always easy. Seeing God is the most beautiful thing in our lives. And we should feel encouraged, too, because believe it or not, David actually struggles with this, too, in this very passage. In the first six verses, things seem great, right? In spite of David's circumstances, he's confident, he's unafraid, he's unfazed. But then notice from verse 7 all the way down to verse 12, he doesn't seem so confident anymore. He's fallen off the horse and he's trying to get back up. He's a human being after all. He's a guy we can relate to after all. Do you see that? Look at what it says in verses 7 to 12. Verse 7, Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. Verse 8, Lord, I am seeking you. Show me your face. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn me away in anger. Do not leave or abandon me. Verse 11, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Verse 12, do not give me over to the will of my enemies. Now, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with with David here, but that's a pretty dramatic shift that just took place. Quite suddenly, we see that David is not having a good day at gazing on the beauty of the Lord. He's not having a good day at at feeling the presence of the Lord or finding shelter or calm in him. Now, I do suspect, based on some of the things David says here, that he may be, he may be struggling in his own, with his own sin. Why else would he say, Lord, don't turn away from me in anger. Show me, uh, show me your way. Lead me on a level path. And we do know that David stumbled and faltered in, in sin on a number of occasions in dramatic fashion. In any event, it's clear that David is struggling here. You can, you can hear it and you can feel it, and you and I will struggle too at times. But he also begins talking himself through it, doesn't he? He begins talking himself past those feelings. And you get a glimpse of that in verse 8 as he You see, as he begins to struggle, he says, Lord, I will seek your face. Show me your face. And that word face is the very same word for for presence. He's saying, I will continue to seek your presence even when it feels like you're not there. And then in the final two verses of this psalm, verses 13 to 14, he's talking himself through it again. He's speaking to himself rather than listening to himself. Look at verses 13 to 14. He's talking himself through it. He says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. And so even when he's not feeling it, even when he's struggling to gaze upon God's beauty, he says, I will trust you, Lord. I will trust you, not based upon my feelings, but in spite of my feelings. He's reminding himself of who God is and what he's done. In verse nine, in fact, right after saying, Lord, don't hide your face, don't turn away from me or abandon me, What does David say? What does he call him? He calls him the God of my salvation. He's reminding himself. And then in the final verse, verse 14, David says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. He's talking to himself again. He's talking to us too, and he's saying, be patient. 
The Lord hasn't gone anywhere. Your confidence will be restored. Stop believing lies. The fog will lift. Be patient and trust him. One final point, something we must never lose sight of if we ever want to gaze on the full beauty of God. Where is the beauty of God in this passage, according to David? He tells us in verse four, it is in the temple. You see, the Bible tells us over and over again in the Old Testament that the place where, where you were going to experience the presence of God, the place where you were, go- you were going to see the beauty of God was in the temple. But that was only possible for the people to experience the presence of God and to see the beauty of God if a certain type of offering was made to God. You see, the temple was the place of sacrifice. It was the place where the blood of an innocent lamb would be shed to atone for the, for the sin of the people so that the, so that the people could approach God and could enjoy God. This was the temple. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of atonement, and it was the place where God's presence and God's beauty were experienced. But then everything changed when Jesus showed up. In John chapter 2, we're told Jesus, he stepped into the temple. It's the very same temple Jesus, uh, David is speaking of here. Jesus, Jesus showed up, and he, and he began stirring things up. He began driving people out. He began acting like he owned the place. And then in John chapter 2, verse 18, the religious leader said, By what authority do you do these things? What sign will you show us for doing these things? And in verse 19, Jesus answered them. He said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews said, The temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? Then in verse 21, John says, But he, he being Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body that would be destroyed and raised up again in three days. What Jesus is saying here and what the Bible is saying here is that the beauty of God and the presence of God would no longer be found in the place called the temple. No, rather they would be found in the person called the Christ. Jesus, he replaced the temple Jesus became not the place, but the person where the fullness of God would dwell. Jesus Jesus became not the place, but the person where the beauty of God can be most fully seen. Jesus became not the place where an innocent lamb would be slaughtered. No, he himself became that innocent lamb who was slaughtered for you and I. And do you know one of the best ways for you and I to see and to savor the beauty of Jesus? We do it by understanding what he gave up and what he set aside and what he took on for you and I. Hundreds of years before Jesus stepped into humanity and took on flesh and blood, our God speaking through the prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, we're told that this coming Messiah, this Jesus, it says many were appalled at him. 
because he was beaten so badly, his appearance became so disfigured that he no longer resembled a human being. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, who was beautiful beyond measure, he set aside all of his beauty. He emptied himself of his beauty. He became one of us, and he went to the cross where he was bloodied and beaten and disfigured. Jesus Christ, who was beautiful beyond measure, he took on our sin. He took on our ugliness so that you and I, in spite of our ugliness, could in God's eyes become beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are uh, the most beautiful. Would you help us now to see that more and more clearly? Would you lift any fog that may be obstructing our view of you? Would your beauty move us? Would it melt us? And would you stir our hearts now to experience you, to find pleasure in you, to be satisfied in you as we sing to you and as we express our love for you. Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us. We thank you that you would come for us, that you would live and die for us, that you would set aside your beauty in order that we might become beautiful to you. It's in your name that I pray, amen.